live an uncommon life, one needs to learn uncommon disciplines. folks, welcome back to the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. My name is Mark Devine. Thanks so much for joining me today. Super stoked to have you here. As you know, I don't take that for granted. I think I might say that a lot, but the fact that you're here listening when there's a bazillion other podcasts out there, wow, man, that is humbling. Uh, it helps if you rate the podcast. So if you haven't rated it, go to, go to iTunes and click on that star on the far right. That would be a five-star review. If you like this, then just start right there. And appreciate it. We have over, uh, I think, 1,100 five-star reviews already, and uh, we're ranked in the top 10 in iTunes in the health and wellness category. So, hoo-yah, appreciate your support. We launched a new condensed version of our Unbeatable Mind training in January. It's pretty extraordinary. You know, it's one of those things we just packed more than we ever thought reasonable into this program. If you want to learn some of the breathing practices in our visualization and setting micro goals and really staying front side focused, then this is a great way to get going. And it's only 99 bucks. It's actually free. You pay at the end. And so if you don't find the value that I'm suggesting is in it, then you don't have to pay. You can find out more about that at unbeatablemind.com forward slash challenge. Unbeatablemind.com slash challenge. You know, it's interesting. I resisted doing this because, you know, we had a saying in the spec ops community that special operators can't be mass produced and an unbeatable mind is a year long training program. But, you know, people are distracted and busy. And so it's hard for, you know, someone to commit to a year. So we've said, why not let's at least commit to 30 days and see how that goes. And um, the results have been extraordinary. Of course, once you're done with the 30 days, you're going to want to do the year long program. But or join one of our bookers. So check it out. You'll love it. Also, thanks to all of our sponsors, which helps us monetize this podcast so that we can do more great work. I am super excited to have Mike Hayes with me today. You know, Mike was a teammate, retired in 13 as a commander, extraordinary career. I'm really excited to talk about it. And I learned really about Mike because he put a book out recently. I'm going to hold up the cover called Never Enough. What a phenomenal cover and the subtitle is the Navy SEAL commander on living a life of excellence, agility, and meaning, which are the three major themes that he kind of digs into and, and helps kind of elucidate through some great stories. Uh, time in the SEALs, his time as a White House fellow, his time as uh, heading up digital operations for VMware. Anyways, yeah, Mike, I mean, I could read, I was going to read what my producer put together, but I think that we'll just kind of get into the stories. You know, I want to hear about negotiating with the Russians on the START Treaty. You know, I was reading about your time in Bosnia. I mean, just extraordinarily cool career. So at any rate, let's talk about that stuff and who you are and, you know, kind of your ideas and leadership and see what else comes up. Super stoked to have you here, my friend. Hey, Mark. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here. And I'd be remiss if I didn't pause first and say thanks to you for all the incredible positive impact that you've had on people, the nation and the planet. So millions and millions of thanks to you. And, uh, you know, you've got an incredible reputation for, for a great reason. And so I'm, I'm, I'm more stoked to be here, my friend. <laughs> yeah. As I mentioned to you, that is really good to hear because I'm in my own little bottle. Sometimes I don't read the label very well. You know, I just like one day at a time, you know, get up, put the pants on rinse and repeat. And you never know, right. Cause early on, as you know, it's, you know, especially after the Bin Laden raid and those books came out about that, there's a lot of angst about people who have written books. And I know you hesitated 
I read in your forward, you hesitated to write your book, probably for similar reasons. And so I've never really known. I, I knew I was having an impact with special operators and the trainees, you know, because we we kind of introduced a whole different way of training through the mind mind training that we do. And Buds is now using those techniques. So like I knew we were having an impact, but I didn't know if I was liked <laughs> or not. So well, it's good to hear it's, that. It's, anyway. it's, Everybody yeah, wants well, to be liked. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's true, man. And, and, and it's really, it's a great connection actually to the title of the book, Never Enough. You know, a lot of people right. think it's, it's, it's about, you know, fame and fortune and all these cool yeah. things. And in reality, as you know, cause you've read it, it's about meaning and impact. And right. one of the key thing, themes, which you know, better than anybody in the beginning is, is about excellence. And you say, well, gosh, you know, the real path to excellence is trying really hard things. And then, you know, it's really only, I like to say failure is only failure. If you fail and don't learn, if you right. fail and learn, you've just succeeded. And you say, well, you know, wh- why did I, why was I slightly hesitant to write a book over the years, et cetera. Et cetera. And, you know, when, you're, when I really boil it down, I think it's, it is like what you just alluded to. It's we are, we care a lot about what our community and and just people who we've never even met think of us. And, and I got to the point where I said, you know what, I've got a lot of great stuff to share. And if anybody thinks less of me for sharing any of this, which by the way, I haven't experienced, but, but but if those ghosts are, are chasing me, then, uh, then so be it. And if somebody thinks less than that's not somebody I need to be around. So forget them. Yeah, exactly. I'm with you on that. You know, I've gotten the feedback from you know, people I respect like Mags, who's, you know, former master, you probably know Mike Maggiacci, great guy. And others like Bob Schultz, people that I stay in touch with who's still involved down at Buds. And they, they are, they actually appreciate uh, guys like you and even me and even Jocko who've written books that are actually very useful for young leaders and for actually leaders of all stripes within the community because it helps distill lessons learned and knowledge that otherwise would be, you know, kind of bottled up somewhere in someone's head. They don't appreciate, you know, the guys who go out there and beat their chest and talk about how cool they were. And, you know, they were the, they were the reason that the, you know, that the team won the day, you know, taking credit where credit was not due. And I think you, you and I can share that. So, yeah, I think, you know, Mark, it's um, one of the things I also, as you know, wrote about is, is thinking about confidence and humility, not as a point on a single line, right. but there's two axes, you know, you have varying degrees of confidence and varying degrees of humility. And mm-hmm. I haven't met, too many, any seals that lack confidence. Right. Uh, and, and so the thing that sometimes I, I find people confuse is confidence and they, they conflate confidence with lack of humility. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as I wrote the book, I really tried to separate the, the humility part. I'll always come into a room with an idea, but I'm also very open that I, I rarely have the best idea. The power of, of the, all the experience in the room is always going to outthink, outthink or outclass or outact me. And so, sure. you know, it, it really that, that was, that was one of the, I think one of the, the key themes. And, and I, as you know, if you write a book where you're the president of your own fan club, that's not a book. And so, <laughs> so I really tried to open up and share more of the things that I've done wrong over the years than what I've done. Right. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. And that's a great model. Tell us your journey into the SEALs. Like, how did that come about? That's always very interesting. And, and what were some of the formative lessons you learned, even at BUDS? Well, I, I, first of all, I have to start with my grandfather, who was U.S. Naval Academy, class of 1940, and was at Pearl Harbor on the day of infamy, December 7th, 41. And wow. I, I just grew up in a family uh, that had an indelible mark of service through the generations. And so... 
Uh, nobody ever pushed me into the military as the oldest of four. I said, you know, if, if I get this ROTC scholarship, then I can leave some room for my younger siblings to go to college, et cetera. And so that's really where it started was at Holy Cross, College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Mass, and the ROTC program. But, um, you know, I was a freshman, Mark, when, in 1989 when we invaded Panama and there was a SEAL named John Connors. Who, I'm just going to ask you about him. Yeah, John Connors, yeah. Holy Cross guy. Well, yeah, he was Holy Cross ROTC. Worcester Polytech was his his college, and I, I of course, I never met him. He he graduated the year before I entered, but there was a memorial service for John after after the invasion of Panama. And as a freshman, I saw really what the SEAL community was about, and then I didn't walk out of that service and say I want to go be a SEAL. But three years later, as I was needing to make my selection of what to do in life. I was like like many of us, perversely attracted to the challenge of okay, what's this really hard thing in front of me, and and uh, but but also the, the definitely attracted to the the sense of community. Yeah, I love that. In fact, I was at Officer Canada School when the Panama invasion went down, and I remember staring up at a TV, you know, looking at John's name, and there were three other SEALs who passed away in that in that operation, and thinking, wow, this is real. Right. There by the grace of God go I, because I'm going to Bud's in two months and John wasn't that much older than me. It was really kind of a seminal moment in my uh, my career to to come to face to face with that was real. And it reaffirmed my commitment, you know, to the teams and that I was doing the right thing. So it didn't scare me, it just kind of woke me up, which is interesting. Yeah, I had a similar experience. I mean, you know, we, we, we lost guys in training here and there over the years, and every single one of them really rocks the community. Mm-hmm. And post 9-11, it, it, mm-hmm. it, it even got a lot more real. And as a, every SEAL of, 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 I'd say, my era who, who did 20 years and, and you know, got our friends and, and colleagues, we've all buried 40 or 50 friends and teammates. And so at this point, there are a, a really good number of, of guys that I know or I should say, you know, knew better than my own brother. And yeah, I'm very, sure. very close with my blood brother. So it's, uh, it, it's really been a, it's been a challenging, you know, 15, 20 years of combat. Yeah, for sure. You know, I was a reservist after nine 11 and I, and I served active duty for a couple of recalls and went to Iraq and everything, but I, I didn't experience that as acutely as you did. And as my, you know, our other teammates did who were on active duty that whole time. I have been to a few funerals, but you know, I, I wasn't a commanding officer like you where I had to attend as their boss. And I'm curious on this point, how did that change you? You know, to, you know, it's one thing to deal with it once or twice, but to deal with it 40 times, what do you think that, what effect did that have on you? How did it make you more humble or more whole as a human or, or more fractured and, and you know, desensitized possibly? Yeah, you know, Mark, it's a it's a wonderful question, and I appreciate the question because just to really run wide open, it unquestionably fractures you. However, comma, you know, it also drives the give back and help those less fortunate. You know, today's July sixth. It was I lost uh, Jason Lewis and two other non seals that were an equal, if not more, part of our task unit in in, the, in Baghdad in in two thousand seven and. So, you know, we're all reminded of days like today when when there are anniversaries and and it's uh, what it does for me is it drives me and gives me energy. I can either look at my feet or I can stay, you know, shoulders back, chest out and look at the horizon and and keep driving forward and try to do great things on on the planet. And and look, I have my hard days just like everybody does. But but, you know, I I just try to really center and and focus on giving back and and helping those less fortunate. We've been through a real 
hard year and a half, even with this pandemic. Let me draw a parallel there. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, in the SEALs, we don't think in absolutes, we think in relative terms. And so while the whole team or the whole nation, both metaphorically the same, you know, we're all going to have absolute bad days. But what matters is do, do the people, do the teammates who are relatively up go help the teammates who are relatively down? And that's what life's about is we pull people up on our good days. And when we're the person who's down, not, not surprisingly, we have a whole group of people whose energy are ready to help pull us up because that's what we've been doing the other, the other time. So that's how we live. I love that. You know, that um, speaks to one of the things I loved about the SEALs. They really taught me how to willingly receive help and support, right? Because in the teams, like you said, everything is hard. And you can't be great at everything. And there's going to be times or moments that either you're the weak link or, you, you know, there's, a, there's just something not going right. And you have to be able to accept and receive help. That's actually a tough skill for a lot of people to learn in leadership. And it kind of ties to this idea of being ready to lead, ready to follow, right? People think, yeah, I'm a leader. I'm ready to lead. But that following part now, nah, I left that behind long ago. Uh-uh, right? Yeah, totally. And I think it does tie back a bit to ego. Uh, well, what I'll tell you first, though, is look, I, I'm 6'4", you know, 225 or 230 when I went through through Buds. Man alive, I was not God's gift to the pull-up bar. We did not get, me and the pull-up bar did not get along. But, uh, okay. you know, just like everybody, we've got our weaknesses, you know. And But then I was going to draw the parallel, uh, you know, as as we, we think about going forward, how do we lean into those weaknesses and know them and then say, hey, I've got a bunch of other friends who, who can do the things that I'm less good at. And how do I not need the credit or the ego of being the person who does the thing. Like Leaders don't need to make the best decision. Leaders need to make sure the best decision gets made. And there's Mm. a big difference as a mindset, as a lead, as a commanding officer. If you would have asked me when I was second in charge of a team in in Iraq and said, you know, what's it going to be? Do you know what it's going to be like when you're overall in charge? I would have said, absolutely. I totally get it now. Then the truth is, uh, in retrospect, once I was in command and running a whole special operations task force of multiple thousands of people and, and 2,000 people in Afghanistan, I, 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 there was an extra weight on me that's a little bit hard to describe. And, and it really is important to, like you said, know what help you need, ha- recognize that asking for help is a sign of strength, not weakness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. There's so much we could just dig out of that one. But I want to go back to something you said one of the reasons that you and I and our teammates are excited to go get our asses kicked in the hardest training in the military, you know, and I think there's something inside of us that just recognizes that hard equals growth, right? If you don't go for hard, if you don't challenge yourself, you kind of don't grow, you get stuck or you're stagnant. I figured that out early on through my endurance sports and then through my martial arts. And I, and I like, I really love the suck fest, Right. And so there was nothing besides the SEALs that I was going to do in the military. I had zero interest in the military until I learned of the SEALs. And I said, that's it. That's where I'm supposed to be because that's the, that's the place I can do the hardest freaking thing possible so I could grow the most. Was that your experience or what, what's your thoughts on this? Absolutely. I'm not sure I was as mature as you were when you made the decision. I was, uh, I mean, we might've been the same age, but I was probably, you know, developmentally or or mentally or something like eons behind you, but through, but through time, unquestionably, that's how I feel. And I've really just said, don't be afraid to aim high and and miss, be afraid to aim low and hit. And, and, and so that like that go for the hardest thing you possibly can. But then I think Mark, what's, what often gets missed is 
Don't just try the hard thing, but be objective and reflective afterward and say, and be really true to say, what could I have done better? You know, when mm-hmm. things go sideways, I've experienced, you know, almost a, nat- a proclivity, a natural tendency for people to point the figure externally. And maybe, maybe they po- pointed at themselves eventually, or maybe they don't point it at themselves at all and say, what could I have done better? And I, in the SEALs, one trait or habit that I picked up and I think really drove whatever success I've had, which is that I might be only one, I might be hundred percent wrong, or I might just be 1% wrong. But even when I'm 1% wrong, I start with myself and I say, what could I have done better? Could I have mm-hmm. communicated more clearly? Could I have thought more crisply or been more logical or done something different? And then you never miss the opportunity to say, what could I have done better and feed that back into, you know, the rest of your career. I love that. That rigorous self-assessment you know, where you're always starting with, you know, your own mind and looking at, you know, how did, what did I learn? How did I grow? What were my weaknesses? What could I have done better? I think that's a great lesson for all leaders, right? Just start there. And it's almost applying the OODA loop internally, right? On everything you do, every decision, every action. And then that, let that inform, you know, kind of how you bring the next set of words or choices or opportunities, you know, to the team or to the situation. I love that. Yeah, it's in, in like in the, the way it translates in the business world now is that like we don't have like we see things where people say, hey, I had a playbook for that, mm-hmm. you know, and if something went wrong and they have a playbook to take off the shelf and go follow the playbook. Right. You know, we know from the seals that the only thing that's good about a playbook is that, you know, you have a place to start from. Right. <laughs> and the only real playbook that matters is what I describe as the meta playbook, which is that playbook for creating the playbook in the moment. And Mm -hmm. so the crisis is like, define the outcome you're trying to achieve. What are all the strategies that you can use to get there? How do you mitigate risk on each of those paths so that you can then make a resource decision and say, are the resources we need to go achieve the outcome worth the risk that we're going to assume? Only assume the least amount of risk as we have to in order to achieve the goal. And those like that rigorous, uh, systematic way of thinking is what ultimately, you know, drives success, whether it's the SEALs or business. That's terrific, Mike. I love that. That's that's your next book, Meta Planning, right? Planning how to plan on the fly. <laughs> well, you know? I think I, I think I'm not. I don't have the corner market on that. I mean, just <laughs> no. everybody in special operations or even the even DoD, you know, yeah. understands the, what, what's the saying: the plans plans never survive uh, first contact with the enemy. You know, right. just that in the seals, we were we were always thinking three steps ahead whenever we could. That's right. I love the term fast twitch iteration. You know, which kind of speaks to that. It's like the, the plan is to figure out the plan in the moment, right? When you get punched in the face or, you know, things don't go, go as well as you thought they would. I want to come back to, you know, and just draw some distinctions about going, uh, you know, accepting hard and accepting hard things, whether it's SEAL training or, or whatever you want to do that's going to challenge you. Getting, you know, comfortable with the discomfort of that, but also not conflating that with being hard or a hard ass, right? Or thinking everything in your life is going to be hard. Because what my experience was is if you try to be the mighty oak all the time, right? And you put out the image that you're invincible or invulnerable, eventually, you know, you're going to get smacked down, right? And you're not going to be able to get back up. It's going to be tough. So you need to you know, learn to project the mighty oak when it's appropriate, but also you need to learn to be the reed that can bend over and, you know, be 
soft. You know, it's like the yin and the yang, the, the hard and the soft need to go hand in hand in glove. And I think some of our teammates kind of forget that, right? And even some of our teammates in the public eye, it's like, just do it. You know, I'm thinking of my friend, you know, our, our, our buddy Goggins, right? It's like, great. You know, it's, it's tough to go all one speed. And, you know, especially if you're heading toward a wall, you know, it's not going to go so well if you hit that wall. So you need to be able to find the softness, find the recovery, find the, you know, be the reed instead of the oak all the time. A million sure percent. articulating that well. Yeah, no, I, it resonates a lot with me. The um, in, in 1996, I was a 23 year old SEAL on my first time overseas in, in South America, and got held at gunpoint and and ultimately threatened with execution and torture and a bunch of bad things. And you know, if I would have been tried to be the oak tree in that situation and right. be all tough and and beat my chest, I, I wouldn't be here today. There's no right. question about, about it. You know, myself, right. me, and my swim buddy lived through it. And, um, and we had to be the read that, that bent and, and, you know, right. and, uh, you know, go into the story in, in the book, never enough, but, but, uh, you know, through life, there are so many different times where that, that facile being facile and being nimble and agile is really what gives you more tools in the toolkit. So you can figure out that fastest or easiest path to go achieve the goal. And again, it's just setting ego aside and to put it in career terms, you know, it's like that third phase of a career that I think a lot of people don't get to in my, these are my words, but first phase of a career, just really learning foundationally something, whether it's a SEAL, a doctor, a lawyer, accountant, whatever it is. Number two, the second phase is trying to prove to the world how, that you're really great at whatever you picked. You know, right. it, it, we go through that, that phase of like, Hey, I really want the world to know what I'm doing. Like remember on that second platoon that you're on in the seals, yeah. you're like, Hey, I'm not a new guy anymore. I really know my way around a little bit, but, but that third phase is what, when you no longer have anything to prove to anybody, mm-hmm. that's when you're really liberated to go even be better because you don't need the credit. You're not, you don't, you're not scared about blame. You can stand in front of a room and say, I'm not embarrassed to say that I have no freaking clue. But you know what? I know a lot of smart people who do. And so that's what really, uh, in my view, that third phase of that career is really what accelerates us to, to your point, Mark. I love that. My my last book, Staring Down the Wolf, is all about that. And, you know, coming up from a different angle and how leaders are, I was going to say often, but pretty much always the limiting factor in their own teams. And it's because the, uh, they haven't learned to get out of their own way. They haven't learned to assume that perhaps they don't have the right answer, or perhaps their plan isn't the best plan. And to be able to step back and to stare down their own judgments, their own perfectionism, their own righteousness, you know, if you can add these isms and this is to things, it's the way that we're conditioned to behave and react when you're operating purely out of ego. And you're right. Most people, you know, in that second phase, which is what has led to a lot of the messes it, I think in America is like everyone, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people are acting out of ego and they're making decisions that have second and third order consequences that are negative, both for their team, their organization and and society at large. So I think that's one of the things that you are trying to shed some light on, you know, with your book and certainly something that I've been working on is like, Hey, let's move forward together, right. As a team of teams, let's get out of our own way, do our own work, you know, do that self rigorous self-awareness to recognize that, hey, you know, we all have value and the best idea comes from the collective. When the collective group, the team has the ability to express itself with that psychological safety and that willingness of the leader to be like, 
like you just said, guys or ladies, I don't know what the right answer is, but together we can figure this out. That's the kind of leadership we need, I think, in this country. I couldn't agree more. And I'd layer, I I emphasize everything you just said, I'd layer on top of it as being a little bit more data-driven with our decisions. And so I had the privilege of leaving the teams after 20 years. And I went to the world's largest hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, where- Uh, you know, I, I learned from some people who were the average of the people we hang out with. So I always aspire to hang out with people who are smarter, faster, stronger, et cetera. And then, and I not so mysteriously get pulled up. I, of course, I try to pull other people up in the areas where I can. But um, but the, the, the main thing, I, one of the very um, interesting things that I learned at Bridgewater was really to separate your data from your logic, from your opinion. And let me describe really briefly. If you just come in, Mark, and say, hey, Mike, I think we should do X. I'm like, okay, that's great. I know what you think. But if you come in and say, hey, here's what I'm looking, here's the data I'm looking at. Here's the logic I'm applying to the data. Here's why I think that we should go do something. And, and here's here's how it, it'll play out. Now, what I can do is say, hey, Mark, I don't know if you're looking at the right data. You might have missed X, Y, Z, or did you, or, or, or so I can have an, a, like a, a discussion at the data level. Mm-hmm. Or the logic level, I can say, hey, Mark, actually, I don't think the logic that you're applying to that data is the same way that I'm thinking about it. Let's have that conversation. Let's bat that around a bit. Mm-hmm. Or I can say, hey, when Mark, when you apply your logic to that data, I don't think it leads us to A, it leads us to B. But in all, in all cases, separating that data and that logic and that opinion now we ena- enable a richer conversation. You know, right. everybody, you know, the, America is so polarized right now, but like, look, look there's a lot of, uh, there, there are some, uh, very uh, interesting, I'll just call them just to be dead center of the highway kind of opinions on was the election stolen? Not to get political right now, mm-hmm. I won't, but let's look at data. Let's right. look at data. Like everybody's just offering opinions, you know? And so how do we think as a, or, or you know, you can, should the infrastructure bill be 2 billion or, or 2 trillion or 1 trillion or 900 billion? Or like, let's think like, what's the return on the investment of this? And like, really think about data when we're making our decisions. It's really easy as humans just to jump right to that opinion and say, here's what I think should happen. But being able to get to the deeper why really helps all of us. Yeah, I love that. You know, kind of where my mind is going is like when I was in the teams, we really didn't have access to great data, right? And and I'm sure you saw probably similar, like because you you got out in 13, certainly not the level you probably experienced at VMware or Bridgewater, right? And they're getting better, right? With AI and, you know, the cloud and all that. But um, I think the older leaders have difficulty with what you just described, right? Because they grew up thinking their opinions were gospel and without great data, you know? So it's the new skills. It, it absolutely is. And I'm, it's, there, there's, there's room, obviously, life has to be a combination of quantitative and qualitative assessments. Right. The qualitative is like a gut, but that's, that's, but that an intuition and gut happens for a reason. Your brain's actually pattern matching with lots of things that you've seen mm-hmm. over your life. It's just hard mm-hmm. to articulate the, that data and that logic you're that mm-hmm. in the moment. And so a lot of people say, oh, I'm working off of, you know, just my gut, but it's really, that still is, is to some degree it's data, but you can't deny that when you can create an actual da- a data set to look at different things, you're gonna it, you're going to derive insights that we can't do very well as individual humans. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about um, the three themes in your book, and I know we've already you know hit on a couple of them just inadvertently here, but excellence, agility, and meaning. And maybe if you could um, 
like highlight what you think are, you know, the most important kind of way to achieve excellence, agility and meaning and, and, and a story that kind of helped you understand those concepts? Yeah, well, I, I think for me, the last third of the book is the most impactful and the most important, which is around meaning, but it, but you have to build on foundations of individual and organizational excellence. Mm-hmm. And then the agility that we've previously described, and um, that that can help you land the meaning points and impact. And, and a lot of us go through life incredibly busy. We're caught up in the day to day. the The equivalent, the SEAL team equivalent, is I'm the commanding officer of a team that is going through, you know, seven different outstations in direct combat with the with the Taliban. And I walk into the the operations center, and I I can just. Uh, two things are true. Number one is I don't have a job. I've designed the organization so that I walk in and don't have to do anything. And that's by that's intentional because then I can listen and absorb and think about that negative space. Everybody's so busy. When I walk into a, a, a Fortune 500 organization and I say, who's in charge of what you're not doing? No one raises their hand. <laughs> you know, we don't think like the like humans don't think like that. And so as a SEAL commander, I have to think like that. I'm going to walk in that room and say, what are we missing right now? Right. And, and I could, I could, the, the, I could, there are dozens of stories of when that really legitimately helped us mitigate risk. And may I be so bold? I mean, I'd say once or twice, it definitely saved lives. And, um, but, but that, so that's, it's fascinating because the organizational design is so inextricably linked with the outcomes that an organization creates. And so, you know, and then you say, sorry, I'm drifting a little bit into the excellence no, no. and the agility. Can, point. I, can I pause you? To, um, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the military is biased toward action. And I think, all of us, you know, the Western business world is biased toward action. And, you know, we had this saying, doubt is eliminated through action alone, right? But I believe, and I think what you just basically articulated, there is equally um, rationale for inaction, right? And so sometimes the best action is no action. And how do, how do you, how did you learn that? And, and how do you kind of Think about yeah. that nowadays. Well, it it brings me to one of my favorite topics, which is decision making. Mm-hmm. Mark, I think about decision making it, it maybe a little bit differently than some, but I think in decision making, the first decision is not the decision; mm-hmm. it's when to make your decision. Yes, I love that. and and so a lot of people don't understand that because that bias to action causes you to think you need to make that decision in zero point two seconds, when a lot of times you're better off waiting two weeks. Mm-hmm. And the way I think about it is. When I'm uh, either in a business leadership role or a commanding officer of a SEAL team running operations, there are a series of inputs that have value. How do I get better, faster, more rich inputs into a process? Then on the flip side of that equation, there's time, which has a cost. Mm -hmm. When the time associated with getting better or more inputs is um, costs more than it's worth. That's the inflection point where you have to make your decision. And so that could like, that's the first thing to think about is how do you get, you surround yourself with people who don't think like you. I've been talking about diversity in the, in the decision-making process and in the workplace for a really long time. And I, I deeply believe that we are better, much, much, much stronger when we have opinions and experiences that aren't like our own. I wrote in the book about like how artists tend to hire hard artists and engineers love to hire engineers. You know, it's the kind of metaphorical, a little whimsical, but like, if I'm the artist, I want to be around an engineer. It, it, the lunchtime might not be as fun, but you know, when we're going to make really uh, awesome, uh, uh, you know, really big picture decisions, like the the ability to to see behind you in the spots where you can't see, 
Mm-hmm. It happens from surrounding ourselves with people who have who don't think like us. That's got value in an organization. And that's the first way I think about it, Mark. Yeah, I love that. And I know there's a big move for um, to increase the diversity of the of the military and the SEALs in general. Let's talk about you know different ways you saw really good leadership kind of express itself. You know, one you described running a dish soda, which is very different than running a SEAL platoon. But then you are also a White House fellow, and I'm kind of curious. You know, you span two administrations, Bush and Obama. But what what was leadership look like? from that lens or through that lens, you know, compared to, let's say the other two or three that you've been exposed to. Yeah. It's, it's really connected to the decision point we just talked about. The, okay. the beauty that I saw in both Bush and Obama white houses was how to govern. Everybody's got a different style. They've got different approaches, et cetera, and certainly different policy policy um, positions, but, um, but setting aside policy and just saying substantively, how do you make your decision? I saw two different administrations do it very, very well and go around the room and say, what do you think? What do you think? And make sure that you've got the inclusivity in the conversation. The, you know, this is, it's, it's also in many ways, how I ran the SEAL team is when we have time to draw out those contrarian opinions, you, you've, you've got to build that into the culture. You know, the, the expression, what is the culture? eat strategy for breakfast. You know, there's, that's a cliche for a reason, because mm-hmm. if you build into your culture, this, like uh, this appreciation for bringing ideas forward and, and building people up, even when their ideas are totally, you know, stupid, like you, you appreciate that. And then you're, you're, you're sure you're going to get the ideas in the future. And that way you have more to choose from. And so I saw it in both white houses. I've seen the absolute best our nation has and do things really, really well. And then candidly, I've seen the flip side where, you know, the, the, the meeting happened, the, the you know, egos and, and um, you know, opinions and, and uh, you know, process breaking down. And I've, 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 so we learn, I've learned, I've had the benefit of learning from what to do and what not to do is the succinct way to say it. Yeah, I understand. One of my uh, commanding officers and mentors was uh, Admiral McRaven. He was my CEO at Team 3, and then I worked with him when he was uh, Commodore Group 1. And did you have any interaction with him? I think I think I read somewhere or I heard somewhere that you and McRaven had some interaction and maybe was with the Banan raid or you know one of those high-profile raids when he was JSOC commander. I was not involved in that. Let me just no. put that put that out first. Um, okay. The I, I've, I've, I'm a huge, huge fan of Admiral Bill McRaven. I think he's a national treasure. Agreed. He's one of our absolute best that we have. I, I hope one day to see him back in the front lines of our making, creating policy for the nation in, in whatever role makes the most sense, whether it's national security advisor or president or secretary of defense or something. But he, he's got my vote for sure. The um, look, I, I, I think that, you know, and he did endorse my, my book. If you flip it over, there's a he, there's a nice, nice statement from him. And I look up to him in a ton. It's, it's, just, it's as simple as that. He's a, he's a, 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 a man who uh, has a very, very grounded way of of approaching situations. And I, I learned I, I never worked directly with him on deployment. I was always around him and in the ecosystem trying to get closer. And a few times, uh, you know, I definitely know him well enough to feel confident in what I'm saying. But I I, I know there are a lot of people who had the benefit of, of you know, years and years overseas with him because mm-hmm. he was deployed so much. He was. Yeah, that's interesting. What um, did not translate well to your civilian roles, either Bridgewater or VMware that you learned in the military that was a must, you know, like a necessary skill? 
Well, you know, Mark, if I could take the liberty of flipping that question and say, what doesn't translate in the military that happens in the civilian world? I have a good example to do it that way. And it's in the book. But, um, you know, I came from the White House. And so when I when I went to Afghanistan, I I had just been in the sit room the previous two years creating Afghanistan policy. So I wasn't like your average 05 commander running a task force like. And so um, so I. I had maybe a little bit of a little bit, maybe even too much confidence on on how everything worked. But uh, we 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 as a nation created a policy called boots on the ground BDA battle damage assessment for a reason. Like I was the last person as a commanding officer to decide what operations our people went on and when we dropped bombs on on buildings or people. It's not you know I'm proud to say we never harmed anybody that we shouldn't have harmed. And the um, this particular evening, or the, the, there was a policy where we, you know, we had dropped bombs on a bunch of Taliban. They were stopped them from doing bad things to good people. And the leadership, the, the the head general staff called and said, "Hey, you have to go do your boots on the ground battle damage assessment to prove that you didn't kill anybody that you weren't supposed to." You know, and I'm, I fully support that. Of course, I do. It's a, a smart policy. However, comma. No policy can be enforced 100% of the time. You need judgment to be uh, happen on the ground. And on this particular night, I said, hey, it doesn't make any sense to go back in there. I know for a fact it's a single choke point road. It's got improvised explosive devices. And, and I'm, I'm going on too long on this story, but the punchline is this. The um, I said, no, I told the general, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And that's great personal risk when you're a commanding, when you're an 05 and the 08, the, the, the general is telling you to go do something. But um, what happened was he he said, look, we'll deal with that no later. I'm going to go tell the Afghan National Army to go do the the, the assessment and, and check that and get that done. I was going to say check that box because that's what it was. The uh, it's really sad, but three vehicles went in and the two vehicles got vaporized and and we lost rough like the Afghans lost four or five guys. And I and and Mark, I've got a, had a bunch of emotional days in the seals, but but mm-hmm. one, certainly one of the top ten or twenty was or top one for all that I know, flying the next day by helicopter out to that station, which was uh, an ODA team, a special for army special forces team, closing the door with these guys and just me and the, I don't know, 10 or so of them and, and having them say, Hey, Hey boss, you know, there aren't too many leaders in the military that would have said no to the general. Most of them just would have sent us back in and, and, um, and quite legitimately quite legitimately five or six of us wouldn't have been here today if you, if you didn't make that decision. And, and um, you know, it's, those are the kinds of days when you're like, wow, I'm glad I did what I did. And so that's the, so the point that, that you're raising is, you know, we need to be agile in our decision-making also. And that's what I wrote about in the book. Never enough. Yeah. You brought up Afghanistan. So you had a big part in that war. And I'm going to ask a question that, you know, kind of veers off topic, but it's, it's been puzzling me is you know we're pulling out now and we have 20 years of treasure and blood and sweat and tears and time away from families (laughs) i'm not going to ask was it worth it because i it it just happened it it is what it is right we did it and now we're moving on but what good came out of that for us from your perspective well what's our return on investment there's always something right there is always (laughs) most people aren't going to be able to see it and i I could i think we could use some help from you yeah thank you mark and i I wrote an op-ed that was published in time about a month ago supporting president biden's decision to to end the war and Mm -hmm. i think you know one of the main 
there, there were a couple premises of, of the why. Number one is not in our strategic interest anymore. You know, and, and we, we went into Afghanistan because it was transnational threat uh, right. central. And um, while there certainly is a local component, the, the the transnational threat is not really there anymore. It's in so many different spots. And, right. and the thing that we're really good, but you, you know, you're, you're a very um, studious man. The uh, uh, remember the um, sunk cost, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's the, the principle of sunk cost is look, if I spent 20 bucks to go to, you know, some event and I would later on decide I'd rather be on my couch and stay home and, and, and chill out. But I, I should stay home and just that $20 is the sunk cost because I'm going to do whatever gives me the most happiness in the moment. Right. Um, and so that concept of sunk cost when you're looking at, at Afghanistan and lives is really hard to walk away from because when you've got 3,000 Americans who've given their lives there, you tend to make a decision that's backward looking. Right. The truth is you have to make decisions that are looking, that are, that consider the past for sure, but that are forward looking. And, um, and so it's just really hard when these are, are literally friends and brothers that, that have, have given their lives there. But it was, it, my opinion is it, it was time to come on, move on. Your question was what good came from it. Look, we, we did ton, like indescribable amounts of good by, by liberating areas that did not have the ability to, to have um, peace and prosperity and, and happiness. Prosperity of course is, is a different standard there than here, but um. But when you when you give a village the ability for the women and children and young young girls to be educated, for example, that feels great, yeah. you know. And, and when you the, the the best gift, one of the best gifts I ever received was a fruit basket from a village elder that said, "Thank you for clearing the Taliban out of this village. Now our our, our women and children uh, can come out and play in the streets, and we can we can ha- we can open our school again." That, there's a lot of good that came that didn't get get much much attention, Mark. Yeah, I agree with that. And even if the Taliban goes in and reasserts control, there's a generation of of youth who experienced freedom. And so they will come back and lead Afghanistan, you know, in the future. It reminds me of, you know, like one of the greatest tragedies people think is, you know, uh, uh, if you're in the Eastern spiritual communities, I spent a lot of time studying uh, that and, and and it infiltrates my work was China Chinese invasion of Tibet and the destruction of all the monasteries were the treasure trove of just unbelievable information. Yet the, the positive ROI on that was that that culture got spread throughout the world and it took root in Europe and the United States. And now is kind of really infiltrating all the thinking in terms of bringing kind of softer, that read like thinking into Western leaders and, and mindfulness meditation and, and essentially the, the yin to the Western yang. It never would have happened had the Chinese not invaded Tibet. It's completely off topic, but it ha- it is related, isn't but, it? But it's, but like, it's conceptually it's related because, like you related. like you point out, it, it's um it, it is spreading wisdom and knowledge and alternate approaches. Right, and so I'm I'm just kind of relating that to Afghanistan. We don't know yet what the what the positive impact, you know, of of the coalition forces, you know, our actions in our in Afghanistan, probably Iraq to the same extent will be for another generation or two. Right? I think that's right. So that's fascinating. Speaking of forward looking and forward work, you know, you, you've started the foundation. I think it's 1162.org. Is that what it's called? The 1162 foundation. foundation. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and that's a reference to the date that JFK founded the Naval Special Warfare Community. One, one sixty-two. Yeah. SEAL teams one and two and uh, your mission and you donated all the, 
proceeds from both your advance and royalties of this book, which is not insignificant what you told me um, before we started here. That's extraordinarily uh, generous of you. But what, what do you see? I know you're, you're trying to help families. Uh, you feel beholden to help families. You know, what's the future of that organization and what's your future in terms of um, where your passion and your meaning really is pointing toward your true north? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. Uh, the future, I don't know. I just keep building my foundation and I'll figure out the walls and the roof later. I, I think that the foundation really has to be in giving more than you you take. And so yeah. living a life of giving more than you receive is is the only way to be. And I've whether it's good experiences or bad experiences, you have to see it all as good because it's learning and it allows you to give back to others. And the 1162 Foundation doesn't have a website, no fan no full-time employees, like literally if you drill in, you can find on the, on an IRS website somewhere that it is a legit employer identification number, et cetera. But, you know, we've, we, I say we, it's really, it's, it's myself and two board members because that's what you have to have to, to be incorporated. We, we've because some of the success of never enough and, and the generosity of, of a few people as well. We've paid off five mortgages for, for uh -huh. widows of, of fallen, of gold star families, fallen service members. And, and, you know, Mark, uh, you know, it, it, around Thanksgiving time, we were able to tell a woman who lost her husband in the middle of the war in Afghanistan and, and got back on her feet, but then lost her business during the pandemic. And, and she and her children were legit homeless and that, that we, we were able to tell her that she's now got a home. And, and we've, we've done this five different times. And Mark, I tell you, it's one of the best feelings in the world when you can really change a life, and and mm. it's um that's 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 what it's about, and so that's that's why for me, tying back to what you said earlier, asking for help is a sign of strength. Like I'd love help getting this book out there because again, I'm not profiting, not not one penny on this thing, and if anything, mm. I'm just it's a lot of time and effort and energy into the book, but it's all to give back, and I think that uh, I've been very fortunate in my life, and I this is my passion project right now, which is helping those who um who aren't as um, able to help themselves or who have, you know, just paid that ultimate sacrifice of what our nation has asked. It's really, really very hard to describe. Yeah, I agree. It's amazing. Well, I'll help you in any way I can. And I was mentioning earlier that, you know, our foundation, the Courage Foundation, our mission, you know, I, we, I, I donate all my, you know, a ton of time, a ton of resources. And we've raised about a half a million dollars through uh, initiatives that, induced a lot of suffering you know we did <laughs> this is funny you probably never heard this but we did 22 million burpees in 2018 and raised a quarter million dollars for the foundation in the process we got a world record you know for like because if you're gonna do that many burpees you might as well get a world record right for the most number of burpees done in 24 hours right a three men and three women team i was on and we did 36,393 burpees in 24 hours oh my god crazy amount of suffering right just, you know, our feeling is that, you know, these vets are suffering, vets with post-traumatic stress and vets with suicide. And the reason the 22 million number was the 22 number, 22 vets committing suicide a day, you know, on average. Mm. So um, I've got another team guy who just took over as executive director, uh, Commander Sid Ellington. I don't know if you ran into Sid during your career, mostly East Coast or West Coast. And uh, so he wasn't playing in the oh. same territory as you, but great guy. So he's now uh, ED and we're, we're spooling up to do another Burpees for Vets challenge uh, on and around Veterans Day this year. That's and it'd be great to tie in your book to the challenge because we've got a bunch of partners 
and uh, be a great way to raise awareness. So I'm going to hook you up with Sid, and I think it'd be a great to have a discussion, see how we can support you and getting your book out there, which will support your organization. And then, um, you know, maybe there's some, some way that that'll uh, pay back to, uh, to the, um, the vets who are, you know, suffering with post-traumatic stress, which is our mission. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm appreciative of any lead. I've had some, you know, been fortunate. The, the book was number two on Porchlight's bestseller for nonfiction last month. It was yeah, number two. And then JP Morgan independently said, Hey, out of the 10 that they do they have a summer reading list and never enough made their, their summer reading list. And so, awesome. I, you know, there's been some good momentum and, um, but in the spirit of the, of what we're trying to accomplish here, never, it's never enough. Never enough. Yeah. Awesome. Well, there's never enough time either. We could go on forever and ever, Mike, but I really appreciate you. Um, you know, contributing your time to this uh, podcast and sharing your stories and talking about your book and leadership. And it's been a great honor and I really, you know, have a lot of fun doing it. I hope we can meet in person soon. Mark, I, uh, like I said, always have, have looked up to you. You're such a, an inspiration and incredible person. And thanks for all the impact you've had on people you've met and people you haven't met. It's, it's really wonderful to spend time with you. And like you said, I, I could go on for another hour or two, but I think we might get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Who? Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And we'll talk. Thank soon. you, my friend. All right. All right, folks. Uh, Mike Hayes, go check out the book. Never enough. Like I said, I mean, I can't say enough good things about this book, the, the writing, the humility, the stories. If you're um, a leader or on a team or just um, interested in even interested in military spec ops, it is just a really, really well-written book, so you won't be disappointed. Never enough, Navy SEAL Commander on Living a Life of Excellence, Agility, and Meeting, Mike Hayes. Who you are, Mike? Mike, do you have a social media handle or anything like that? How can people find out if they want to reach out to you and say, hey, come speak to my organization, or, or I want to buy a thousand books or something like that? Absolutely. Twitter is at this is Mike Hayes, one big word. Okay. Instagram is this is dot Mike Hayes. Uh, and then LinkedIn is just Mike Hayes and seal or something like that. will pull me up. It's I'm not too, or I'm not hard to find on there, but uh, totally appreciate that. Love the, uh, and just looking to give back in whatever way I can. So thanks for that, Mark. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right, my friend. All right. We'll see you, you soon. And everybody out there, thanks again for your support. Really appreciate it. Couldn't do it without you. So until next time, remember it's never enough and <laughs> stay focused and be unbeatable. Oh yeah. <laughs>